Monday, June 28th, 2021, and I wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning into the second season of Ephemeral. Thanks to everyone who's listened, written, followed, reviewed, and recommended our show to a friend. It has been so great to be back. Also, we have news. We're taking next week off, and then, starting July 12th, we'll be releasing a new episode of Ephemeral every other week at Infinitum. So, at least two new episodes a month, with no more breaks between seasons. Shoot me an email. Let us know what you think. We're at Ephemeral at iHeartMedia.com. Ephemeral is a production of iHeart3D Audio. The amazing thing about recorded music is how it can freeze time. Not only the moment in which it was performed, but the points of your life when you're listening most. Anyone who's ever fallen in love with a song can experience this phenomenon, including our friend Bob Purse. My name is Bob Purse. I'm originally from Northfield, Illinois, which is a tiny suburb of Chicago. And I have been, since my early adulthood, a massive collector. I suspect that I own at least 10,000 individual pieces of recorded sound. One record that scored the major events of Bob's adult life was so obscure that it set in motion his collecting obsession some 35 years ago. In May of 1985, on the verge of his 25th birthday, a young Bob Purse was looking for what was next in his life. My future was staring me in the face and I didn't know exactly what I was going to do. I had had an off-again, on-again relationship with college and I was just a week or two away from graduating with my bachelor's degree in human services and intended to find a job working with children. Now is everyone seated where he can see everyone else? Five. I was living at home. As I mentioned, I grew up in Northfield, which is sort of the baby sister of a town called Winnetka. Winnetka, three, two, one. Winnetka, Illinois, is home to a special annual event. It's billed as the world's largest one-day rummage sale. I looked it up, and it's still billed that way. Obviously, it didn't happen this year, but it's happened since 1902. It's held in a building owned by the Winnetka Congressional Church called the Winneka Community House. An enormous building that's basically used for the public. Once a year, they take everything else out of all these rooms and fill them up with rummage sale items. He writes the price on a slip of paper and attaches it to the bag. And it's a one-day sale. It's on a Thursday, I think the first Thursday in May. At 25, Bob wasn't a dedicated collector. Truth be told, he only went to buy a pokalele. It's essentially a ukulele with an odd-shaped body and a neck that's about two feet long, and then the curves at the end. My friend Paul and I both bought pokaleles, and while I was there, I looked through the records. Honestly, that was probably the start of my interest in buying large numbers of unusual records in order to see if there was something interesting among them. Oh, 
I would guess that I bought somewhere between 30 and 45 albums, and probably some 45s, and undoubtedly some tapes. Shoes tape? Shoes! Shoes, 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 shoes. I guarantee you I got that there, probably that day. Don't forget the shoes. Because that church is a mile away from the school that they mentioned. Where do you go to school? <laughs> Crow Island. Crow Island, what is that? We cover this tape in our pilot episode. An island full of crows. I probably bought some stuff that was pretty mainstream that I didn't have yet. I think I bought some sound effect records. Small calibration shaker in the space lab. And I may have gotten some radio production records there, which had like music to use behind promos and things like that. Among the piles of musical ephemera, Bob spotted an unassuming LP. It was just in a plain sleeve inside a plain cardboard sleeve. It looked like something that was home-produced. And all it says on it is Musical Memories of Camp Renovin. Part one is on the front side, and part two is listed on the back. And then it says Sipple Recording Service, Rhinelander, Wisconsin. If I saw a record like that anywhere, I would snatch it immediately. Like, well, what is this? I then had to walk probably close to a mile to get back to my car with a box full of at least 40 albums. I graduated like 10 days later. We all returned back to my house for a celebration afterwards. And I had this big box of records. And I said, hey, you want to hear some of the stuff I got? I pulled out probably three or four records, and that was one of them. We touched down the needle on a couple of spots. I kept listening lists for most of my adulthood. What was I listening to this week? What was I listening to this month? I'm certain that I didn't listen to the Musical Memories of Camper and Alvin album all the way through until October. In those days, I would tape record them and listen to them to and from my way to work or wherever else I was going. If there were 40 new records that I hadn't listened to, it might take a while before I got to it. Throughout the episode, we'll play selections from the original Camp Renoffin record, as well as tracks reimagined by musician Nathaniel Krauss. More details on both in the credits. I really was entranced by the sound of the thing, the ambiance of it, this wonderful echoey piano going on, playing some tunes that I know, a lot of tunes I don't know, and some that I know the tune, but not know what it is. But not a single one of the songs that I do recognize has the lyrics that go with it. Every word I can make out, at least, is about the camp. For example, consider yourself from Oliver. Consider yourself at home. Which is a song I probably never not known because it was written when I was about four or five years old. I take it to you so At some point, I played parts of it for my mom, who was a professional musician, and she recognized a bunch more songs. 
And then there's a whole bunch of songs that I just don't recognize at all. In addition to the ambient texture of the recording and the idiosyncratic nature of the cover songs, the vocal performance struck a chord. I like to hear kids singing when they're singing because they want to sing and not because someone's trained them as how to sing like an adult or how to sing properly. And this is just a bunch of girls singing their hearts out for fun. My second favorite album is an album by the Limelighters, who were a wonderful folk trio in the 60s and then came back in the 80s. And it's recorded live in concert at a show they did along with a bunch of grade schoolers. It's called Three Children's Eyes. Probably my favorite track anybody's ever recorded is on that album. In other words, this was a natural for me. the most immediately is near the end of the album. It's sung to the old Shirley Temple hit, The Codfish Ball. Come along and follow me to the bottom of the sea. We'll join in the jamboree at the Codfish Ball. It's a song about life at the camp. The whole first verse is composed of all the different wonderful things about the camp. And then they sing it again and everything is negative. I could not make out every word, but I got out enough of it that I got the humor of it. The key line at the end of each verse is at Brunavn Camp for Girls. And then the second verse, it's sung as a question with their line, girls? That's the one that I immediately played probably five or six times. Almost as much, and then within a month, much more was this song. And I didn't know the song at the time, but it's called the Missouri Waltz, and it's from the 19th century. As the years have gone on, I've heard many other renditions of this melody, and I just love it. sentimental and very sweet about nighttime at Camp Renauvin. Underneath the silvery beams of Camp Renauvin's moon, night her lovely curtain drops and ends the day too soon. Beneath the sheltering pines we find the soul of happiness. Learn to give and take and think of self a little less. I mean, who writes like that? That's beautiful. Thank you. 
It's maybe the only song on the album that's sung in harmony. for the next year and a half that was the track I listened to more than anything else on the radio or in my collection. Get up and start it all the third one that I really liked is to a 1940s tune called Let's Get Away From It All. And again, the song is great. The melody is indelible. It was a big hit in the 40s with its real words. Let's get away from it all. That one is absolutely about how the day goes by. It starts with waking up what their activities are like. It depends on what they do in the evening. On the LP, there are a total of 37 songs, all performed in the same manner, live stride piano and a chorus of school-age girls. Over the years, I have identified all but about seven or eight of them. Just two of them, or really uh, one and a half of them, are traditional camp songs. But everything else has been rewritten. There are fight songs from various colleges. Ohio. And Ohio State. and Notre Dame. The rest of them are just a cross-section of 20th century song. Scatterbrain, which is a 30s hit. When You Wish Upon a Star, which is from Pinocchio. Silito Lindo, which is a famous Mexican song. White coral bells. A song called Good Morning, Mr. Zip Zip Zip, which is a pop hit. My Wonderful One, which is probably something my mom identified because I've never heard that song. 
Sweetheart of Sigma Chi, which is another real sentimental song. The girl of my dreams. Hey, look me over. Even the chicken reel, which is another 19th century violin piece. Oh, by Jingo, another 30s record. Oh, by Jingo, won't you hear my Moon River, which is from the 60s. Days of Wine and Roses. Probably cover from the 1890s right up until the year this album was recorded. The tracks appear to be grouped thematically, providing a window into life at Camp Brynolfen during some long past summer. It starts off with a group of very general welcoming and cheering for the camp sort of songs. Most camps of those days, maybe even today, assign everybody into one of two groups. If you're on the green team, everything that you do, athletic or other activity, you're trying to win points for the green team. If you're in the orange team, vice versa. So there are 10 songs on side one. Half of them are for the blue team and half of them are for the white team. We are the famous white team and we will never Then it goes back into some celebratory things about life at the camp, some specific things about why they like the camp. Just reinforcing how wonderful camp is. And including one in which there's nothing but a series of complaints about how they get treated by other campers. After that, there's a couple of real sentimental numbers. And the years, we'll see the 
one sung for the old college song, The Halls of Ivy, which is one of the longest tracks on the album. And then two good night songs. One sung to the tune of Let's Get Away From It All breaks down the camper's daily routine. Wake up each morning with the bugle. After a great night of sleep. Dressed in a hurry. Scamper and scurry. To breakfast and oh how we eat. Sit on the floor with our teammates. Join in a song or a yell. Next comes inspection, and here's the suggestion, tuck everything away well. Now don your garb for what comes next, a swim, perhaps a ride. Riflery and tennis, too. We'll all play side by side. More fun again in the evening after the day's setting sun. Bryn Aubin's great gals and how she does rate gals, it's best when it's all said and done. I always thought the rhyme riflery and tennis too was a really weird phrase. I can't think of two things that have less in common. <laughs> and at the top of the first side, there's a song for visiting day. It's to the tune of a song called Scatterbrain, which, as a complete unrelated note, was a favorite of John Lennon's. And somebody's going to ask for something for us to say anything. If you go to this camp or any camp, you probably keep going every year until you age out. So if you're new there, whether you're the youngest age, which I think was seven or eight, or you're just starting to go, even though you're in the middle of range of the ages, you're surrounded by people who already know the songs. So I think you learn them pretty quickly. Bob could consider himself lucky to have stumbled upon such an endearing work, but he had no idea what rabbit holes it would eventually lead him down. By the fall of 85, a young Bob Purse's future was taking shape. I'd gotten my first job that required my degree, which was, as I'd expected, at a daycare center. 
the CBA record was along for the ride. My drive to work was over half an hour, so I was probably listening to this a lot on the way to and from work. Two weeks into my new job, one of my part-time co-workers told a friend of hers, hey, there's a guy working at the daycare now. You should come over and meet him. So she walked in, and I just assumed she was a parent or maybe an employee I hadn't met yet because I'd been there all of nine days. We got to talking, and she explained that she'd worked there. And to shorten things down, right around the time I started listening to the album is when she asked me out. Her name is Gina, and we've been together ever since. That probably corresponded down to a 10-day frame between her asking me out and me listening to this record. I continue working at this job, and it's not what I hoped it would be. I decided at some point along the way that I needed to go to graduate school. Gina and I had been engaged for almost a year and a half and were actively planning a wedding for late May. I'm no longer working full-time, I'm working part-time, I'm doing some other stuff, and I'm going to school for a degree in psychology. We have a special department here of social workers. You go along and see one of them, and you'll find they can help you with your problem. We bought a condo which was in disrepair, and we were fixing it up. Our offense didn't often overlap with each other. So when I was there by myself, I often put on the whole album. My overall affection for the album grew exponentially at that point, and that's when I wanted to find out everything I could about the camp and the album. The Codfish Ball track that I mentioned, Horses Are Fast and Swimming is Great. I was hearing the next line is, All That Snow and What a Lake. That made no sense to me because it doesn't snow in northern Wisconsin in August. But I didn't know what they were saying. I was literally buying my wedding gift for my wife at a JCPenney's. I'm listening to the tape of the record in my car, as I probably was incessantly in that moment. I was about to get out of my car and... They're saying Lake Snowden. It's on Lake Snowden. Within minutes, I'm like, oh, that's what they're saying in that other song. And two other sets of lyrics that didn't make sense to me suddenly were clearly Lake Snowden. If Camp Renoffen had seemed like a mythical place, existing only in the ballads and odes of its admirers, this single clue brought with it the hope of geographical specificity. So I'm like, well, now I know what to look for. At that moment, now meant I'm getting married in a couple of days, so I'm not doing anything with this. But when I got back, I went out to Northwestern and look to see whether they would have stuff that would be of help to me. I found very, very detailed maps of Wisconsin, 
and identified Lake Snowden. I found that it was out a rural road about four or five miles east of Rhinelander on a road that made a semicircle off of the rural route, which was called Camp Renovin Road. In the library's archives, I found two different catalogs of camps that parents could buy to know where to send their kids and how much things were new to contact and all that. This rustic camp bounded by hiking trails and lakeside activities. One from the 20s and one from the 40s or 50s, I think, both of which had listings for Camp Renovin. An archery range, a tennis court, an arts and crafts building, plus a large meeting hall and the campfire circle. Now I knew that it had been around since at least the 20s. It was in an area where my family and I had vacationed when I was five. And it was an area where Gina and I had already camped because she introduced me to camping. It's one of my favorite areas in terms of the look of the place, the climate. The foliage is almost entirely these massive pine trees, which immediately brought to mind the Campernovan Moon Song, the ones the tomb of the Missouri Waltz, beneath the sheltering pines, you find the soul of happiness. But at that point, I had no idea whether the camp still existed. I requested that we make our next camping trip back up to the Rhinelander area. Tent camping? Yes. Gina and me and our dog. That sounds idyllic. (laughs) The first night we camped, I drove by and saw that there was indeed a camp there and that it was called Camp Algonquin. There it is. The next day I went over and there was no life in sight. There was no camp in session. This was late August. I don't know if the camera's going to get this or not. When I pulled in, it was a big gravel parking lot. There's paths with cabins dotting along the way. And then the lake, which is Lake Snowden, has a, a couple of piers going out into it, and everything pulled up on the shore. Well, what a lake. There was an office there. I don't remember if I went up to the office or if a guy saw me pull into the parking lot. But he came out, and his name was Don McKinnon. Hi, how you doing? Hi, all right. Trying to get out of my camp called the Nothing. I think used to be here. That was it. He told me that the camp had been Camp Algonquin since the 1975 season when it had been sold by the previous owners, and that Camp Renovin ended in 1974. But that virtually all of the facilities were the same as had been there when it was Camp Renovin. The Camp Algonquin grounds were like a museum of the old Camp Renoffin. Bob wondered if he may finally have his questions answered around the origin of this mysterious record. Do you know, do you know about this record that I'm talking about? Don McKinnon did not have a copy of the album, but he knew about it. I found it, I found it in the garage sale and I clicked in and I knew I heard it. Really? He took me into the office and showed me some pamphlets from the Camp Renoffin days and some song sheets that he had mimeographed or something on like legal size paper. And they had the lyrics to dozens of songs typed out, each one of them numbered. He let me make copy machine copies. I'm looking at this, there's 11 songs on the first sheet and at least four of them are not songs that I know from the album. Here's one to the tune of Zippity Doodah, which is not on the album. The mimeographed pages also introduced 
a new character into the story. We're going to break up into groups now, and if you'll notice, your locks are different colors. The sheets have a half a dozen references to old Brody. When the great big white moon shines on the camp among the pines, then we'll think of you, dear Brody. Here's to you. How do you do? Old Brody was Lotta Broadridge, and by the time the album was made, she had sold the camp. I was going to have the blue locks go in one group and the red locks in another group. So all references to her were taken out, and new sheets must have been made. How many reds are here? There was a brother camp a couple of miles down the road on a different road called Camp Deerhorn, which was still owned by Lotta Broadbridge's brother or his descendants, which he had opened shortly after Lotta opened Camp Renovin. My understanding is it's still in that family. Hello? Mr. McKinnon was very accommodating and told me that I could go in any building that was unlocked. That's okay if I just... Sure. You're welcome to. All right, thank you. I immediately took off and started filming around the grounds. Here's some real sheltering pines. I interviewed him, put the lens on the camera, and just used it as a tape recorder. What does Bernard often mean? I can't remember if I was actually carrying the album around out of a little boombox or not as I walked through these buildings. I may have been. Lake Snowden. What a lake. And then I found the cabins. And the cabins were a revelation. Graffiti in the bunkhouse. The cabins were full of graffiti. Yay, whites. Yay, blues. From campers going all the way back. I think the oldest one I found was dated 1949. 59, 60, 68, 69, 72. Right up to the present. Some more recent stuff, 87. Some of it was much more coarse than would have been done by the girls in the 60s or 70s. Like I found a drawing of a middle finger. <laughs> that I was pretty sure had come from the more recent campers. Disco rules, so does soul. So I think that was made after it was Captain Algonquin. Thanks. Mr. McKinnon did let me into one lock building, which was where the counselors could go to relax when they didn't have to be with the girls. And it too had graffiti, but it had very fancy stuff. Panels that were painted with text in very elaborate ways. When was all this built? Uh, the camp was built in 1917. He had told me to make sure that I saw what they called the main bungalow, or the main bungalow, which still makes me laugh. That's the nicest building in the whole place. Yeah. It had been designed by students of Frank Lloyd Wright, who was, of course, associated with Wisconsin. This is a gorgeous, large, wooden building with wooden rafters, almost built like a church. This comes out on the film. It's basically T-shaped. There's a long meeting hall with stone fireplaces at each end. Behind each fireplace and accessible through doors on either side is a screen porch. Extending out from the very center of that room is a second part pointing away from the lake with dining tables. And behind that is a kitchen. Kitchen. Next to where the room opens up for the dining part, there's a grand piano, which is covered entirely. And next to the fireplace is a spinet piano. There's another piano. Perhaps this is the one. A spinet piano is basically a small upright. 
it was clear that this was the place. There was no doubt in my mind that that was where it was recorded. That's got to be the piano that was used for that record. Even though one of the songs refers to the girls sitting to sing, I'm immediately picturing them for the recording standing in front of the fireplace and singing along to this piano, which, for whatever reason, the equiness of it or the old-fashionedness of it suggests to me that she's playing on an old, worn-out piano. So I'm filming, I'm filming, I'm filming. I put the camera down, and I am a piano player, so I sit down at the piano and start pounding on it. And no sound comes out whatsoever. It doesn't work. The keys are moving. The connection to the keys are moving. There don't seem to be any hammers in this piano, or if there are, there are no strings. That's never happened to me before. So I, I'm not going to uncover the grand piano to play it. I felt like that would be overstepping. I was just incredibly glad to have been able to follow the clues and to be allowed to be there. Simples, is it? Serious. Even before we got to the campsite, I went into the town to the library to look up to see if there was a simple recording service in town. Knowing that it had been 23 years since the album was recorded, and that seemed rather unlikely. It seemed like a small business at the time. And there was no simple recording service. But there was a simple photography service. The objective of the sound man is to record intelligible sound. I drove to that address. It was a house. It had the name of the company out front. An older couple in their 60s. I say that I'm 60 now. <laughs> invited me in. Mr. Sipple was a photographer. And he told me that in the mid-60s, he had gotten it into his head to branch out and have a local recording service for the area. Okay, let's have a sound check. And then it never really went anywhere. We're getting a hum from something. Sipple remembered the CBA record off the top of his head. I didn't ask him, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the only business he ever got for that. In terms of how he recorded, is it, you think, like, single mic in a room? Yeah, it's in Monterey, and very little doubt that it was done on a reel-to-reel machine, and then whoever he was working with transferred it and had the album stamped out. This is a rehearsal. Sound ready? Rolling. It didn't occur to me until at least 10 years later that I should have said to him, hey, do you still have the tapes? The camp could handle as many as 300 girls, I think is the number. And even if they wanted to try to sell it to families who came the next year, I can't imagine they made more than four or 500 copies. So it's got to be an exceptionally rare record. In 1990, a work trip put Bob in the vicinity of Rhinelander, so he paid another trip to the off-season Camp Algonquin. In two years, a lot had changed, and not for the better. Some of the cabin's graffiti had been painted over. I went to an area I had not gone to before where there was storage, and it was kind of just haphazard. The piano that I mentioned that couldn't play had been moved to this storage area in a sort of an outdoor area, so it was going to get destroyed. It just felt sadder, and it, it, it didn't feel like the same place again. Now that Bob knew the backstory of the record, 
The question he was left with was what to do about its legacy. In the early 90s, Bob and Gina's lives got busier and busier. We had daughters in 1991 and 1993. Everything sort of changes at that point. I found myself listening to any music far less. And yet the CBA record still seeped its way into the Purse family consciousness. I think I played individual tracks for them, or they just happened to be in the car when I was listening to it. I had a tradition of singing songs to them every night. My wife would sit with one of the girls, I would sit with one of the others, and whoever I was sitting with would get to request a song. Or if they didn't want to, I would just pick one. And then I would sing either one or both of the goodnight songs from the end of the album. More often the next to last one. I'll run along home and jump into bed, say your prayers and cover your head. The very same thing I say unto you, you dream of me and I'll dream of you. I don't think they ever really understood or, or knew or cared that it came from the album, but they certainly knew it. In 1996, Bob went online. Once I figured things out, I'd think to myself, hey, I should look to see if there's any references to Camp Renovin online. What comes up is addresses that are on Camp Renovin Road, including Camp Algonquin, which I'm already familiar with. Nothing that's, that's going to help me. But in early 2002, the Camp Algonquin website suddenly had an alumni page, which included a subpage for alumni of Camp Renovin. You opened it up and it had everybody who signed up to identify themselves as a Camp Renovin alumni and their email addresses. So I wrote to everybody, told them how much I love the album, how much joy it had brought me, and that I would love to hear more about the camp. Seven or eight people wrote me back. One of them having been the camp secretary in the early 60s and worked under both Lotta Broadbridge and her successor knew a lot about the history of the camp. Others gave me more sort of a feel of what it was like to attend. Suddenly, this unearthed time capsule had context. In 1964, a lot of Broadbridge was in her 80s. I think maybe we'll just have half of the leaders go into one group and half of the leaders go into another group. And decided to sell it to a married couple, both of whom had worked there the previous couple of years. They decided to make the album before the 1965 season. Rolling. 
under the suggestion of the piano player that worked there, who I just can't stand up good things about. I play stride piano myself very badly, and her abilities are just astounding. Her name was Laura Elbury. Okay, let's have a sound check. They recorded it at some point in the summer of 1965. I was corrected in my thought that they were standing up. I just picture people standing when they're singing, but they were sitting in that section right in the middle of the main bungalow where it opens up into the dining hall, facing the piano, wearing their powder blue shirts and dark blue shorts, as they say in one of the songs. And then the errands who bought the place got divorced and for a variety of reasons, it was too difficult for the former Mrs. Aarons to continue. And she announced at the end of the 74 season that she couldn't find a buyer that wanted to continue with the traditions of Camp Renov. And so she ended up retaining the rights to the name and sold the property to the person who turned it into Camp Algonquin, which was a reading and math camp. I believe for boys initially, and then eventually for younger boys and older girls. In its heyday, Camp Renoffin held an air of exclusivity. It was kind of the camp for the elite. The wealthy sent their daughters there. I don't know if Betty Ford was there as a child, but she worked there as a counselor. I'm going as myself, and if they don't like it, then they'll just have to throw me out. Loretta Young sent her daughter there. I really can only do what I like to do. And Jane Mansfield had at least one daughter that went there. A star owes it to her public to bring the public into her life. Multiple alums sent Bob copies of promotional booklets advertising Camp often to parents of the time, touting activities like horseback riding, fencing, and a regatta weekend. Again, it reflects what a high-end place this was. Any camp is going to try to make the camp look the, the best that it is, and this place looks amazing. Other camp run-off and ephemera circulates, aided by the World Wide Web. There's a lot of postcards out there floating around, especially from the early days. Well, here it is the 27th, and if I don't get this off soon, you guys aren't even going to get it. Booklets have turned up. I, at some point, bought a signature book that the girls were issued to get their friends, like, thoughts and, and statements and stuff like that. I have that. And people sent me tons of pictures. But the Musical Memories album remains an absolute rarity. It's about the dictionary definition of esoteric, so I really get it. It turns out that camp records are in fact, their own small genre. I have three that would probably qualify as the same general concept. I have one called Musical Memories of Chalk Hills Camp, which is a now defunct Girl Scout camp. was still in operation when I found that record. 
and I was very, very excited to find that album, hoping that it would be something along the same lines. It's entertaining, and there's probably a half a dozen songs on there I enjoy, but it doesn't have the ambiance, it doesn't have the arrangement. It's a cappella, there's no instrumentation at all. It's much more professionally produced. The girls sound much more trained, and they're doing entirely established songs. And then the other one that I would say that I like second best, and, and not in a close race, Folkways Records was a tiny label, left-wing label out of New York City that operated from the 40s into the 90s when its owner died and is now part of the Smithsonian collection. In the late 50s, they recorded an album called Songs of Camp, primarily around a campfire at a place called Camp Hillary, somewhere in New England. And it's remarkable for the content of the songs and also the audio verity of the recording. You know, you can hear the fire crackling and it's just folk singers and the kids singing. And there's a couple of tracks on there that are just wonderful. But none of these examples has the special quality of the CBA record. Bob made it his mission to preserve this one-of-a-kind work for the generations, past and future. I got so many comments from folks, and I wanted to give back to them. I don't think any of them had the album. I don't think any of the people I talked to had been on the record, had been there that year. But they wanted a copy, and again, I'm kind of obsessive, so I, I made it into a big production. He starts the job of preparing the story so it can be printed. I was already editing sound and making CDs for myself. That's music recorded as a series of electronic pulses. And I bought some software that allowed you to make CD booklets. The surface is covered by a layer of transparent plastic, so you don't have to worry about grubby fingers or even scratches. So I had to piece it together. It takes many lines like this to make a page. Write all the text. A picture takes up the space of many lines. I finished the CD project in the winter of 2002-2003. So it was within eight or ten months of hearing back from these people. Now, whether there's a market for this kind of disc remains to be seen. Bob continues to ship copies of the CD out to CBA alumni at cost. I made a point of telling people I'm not trying to make money on this. What I'm going to charge you is as close to what it's costing me as I can get. But I'm sure I've sold somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 200 of these over the last 18 years. Has the CD had any kind of reaction from people? Yeah, people are very thankful. Thank you for bringing this back to me. Thank you for making this available. I've been singing along with it all day.
The question I'm left with is, what was special about this time and place? This sunny little corner of Wisconsin in the summer of 1965. Was that specialness captured in the recording? And how could Bob somehow hear it, frozen into the grooves of the record, when he first brought the LP home and let the needle touch down? All I know is that people that write me about Camp Renovin have overwhelmingly wonderful memories and continue to stay in touch with people that they knew there 50 and 60 years later. They obviously had a very special time and would look forward to it all year round and have retained their memories. They can still sing some of these songs. People will write to me and say, you know, I remember this song, is it on the album? Not having talked to anybody else about their experiences at other camps, I have no idea whether or not it's special in terms of what people would say about why they went there, but it sure is a beautiful place. I can tell you confidently that there are camps that people dread going to. Okay, class. Ready to learn about music? Yeah! Yeah. All told, it is still astounding to me that this incredibly rare record happened to end up in the hands that it did. Bob may have had the only extant copy of the musical memories of Camp Renoffa, or at least it seemed that way. I do a search for all things Camp Renoffa on eBay, and for the first time two months ago, a copy of the album came up for sale and sold for 50-some dollars. That's the second copy I've ever seen. I paid a buck for mine. Ephemeral is written and assembled by Alex Williams and produced by Matt Frederick, Trevor Young, and Max Williams. Sample more of the vast libraries of oddities Bob Purse has collected on his blogs, The Wonderful and the Obscure, BobPurse.blogspot.com, and Inches Per Second, Inches-per-second.blogspot.com. And listen to the musical memories of Camp Burnoffin, reimagined by Nathaniel Krause. That's K-R-A-U-S-E at nathanielkrause.bandcamp.com. You'll find links to these and more at ephemeral.show. Next time on Ephemeral. Seven years ago, I was in Greece. 
hanging out with my family. On a whim, I did an internet search for Tony Rice, and I got two hits. One was a Greek Wikipedia article that mentioned his name in quick passing, and then the other one was from a music library in Greece. When I went to the music library's online database, I found the thing that started it all, which was the cover of a piano and vocal score for a song that had my grandfather's portrait. And I was like, wait, what? Support Ephemeral by recommending an episode, leaving a review, or dropping us a line at Ephemeral Show. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And learn more at ephemeral.show.